TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. World War I, the Christmas truce of 1914. Silent night in trenches on the Western Front. The story of the Christmas truce is a documentary film about this spontaneous ceasefire. Thanks to historians Peter Hart, Taff Gillingham and Robin Schaefer, and the choice of rare documentary photos and footage and archived letters from soldiers of both sides. They bore witness to this remarkable moment of humanity during World War I. The film focuses on the section of the trenches where British and German soldiers were facing each other. This radio program goes into distribution on December 13, 2022, by coincidence on the same day that nearly 1,000 faith leaders who signed onto a Christmas truce statement demanded a temporary ceasefire in the war in Ukraine. They write that the way out of the war in Ukraine will not be a military solution and believe that a temporary ceasefire offers an opportunity for moral clarity that could be the first step toward a negotiated peace. Here's historian Peter Hart. On Christmas Eve, the frost comes. The battlefield is transformed. The mud hardens. The puddles freeze. There's a thick morning mist. There is something in the air. It's even felt back at British HQ, who issue this stern statement. It is thought possible that the enemy may be contemplating an attack during Christmas or New Year. Special vigilance will be maintained during this period. The enemy are contemplating something but it isn't an attack. We posted a tiny Christmas tree in our dugout. The company commander, myself the lieutenant, and the two orderlies. We placed a second lighted Christmas tree on the breastwork. Something in the direction of the German lines caused us to rub our eyes and look again. Here and there, showing just above their parapet, we could see very faintly what looked like very small coloured lights. What was this? Was it some prearranged signal in the forerunner of an attack? Things really start to change on Christmas Eve. Now, why is that? The German family would celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. That's when they would have the big meal. That's when they'd give the presents. A lot of the traditions of the German Christmas are what we fondly think are ours. Christmas trees, that comes from Germany. Christmas Eve, the Germans start to celebrate their Christmas. Their post is delivered from home, they've got their letters from their family, they're, that makes them feel warm even if they're freezing cold. They, they, they start to put up Christmas trees, they're sent lots of Christmas trees from home, they put them up in the trenches, they decorate them with candles. There's lots of accounts that there are Christmas trees appear above their trenches with lights and, and they start singing carols. How do the British react? Well, they're suspicious. Suddenly, lights began to appear along the German parapet. 
which were evidently makeshift Christmas trees adorned with lighted candles which burnt steadily in the still frosty air. We were very suspicious and were discussing this strange move of the enemy and something even stranger happened. The Germans were actually singing. Not very loud, but there was no mistaking it. We began to get interested. Suddenly, across the snow-clad no-man's land, a strong, clear voice rang out. No other sound but this unknown singer's voice. Stille Nacht, heilige Nacht, alles schläft, einsam wach, nur das traute Hochheilige Bach, And, and then, you know, someone's singing Silent Night in German. Silent <laughs> And they join in, they, they applaud, they start to shout things backwards and forwards across no one's Merry Christmas, Fritz. Merry Christmas, Fritz. Merry Christmas, Fritzy. Now, one thing that's interesting is a lot of the Germans could speak English. They're better educated than our lads, I fear. But that's not all. Many of them had worked as waiters or in butcher's shops uh, in London, in Manchester, in the, the great cities. There were lots of Germans who'd lived in England. And, and therefore, there was quite a bit of band. They could shout out across no man's land. And of course, the British, you know, cheery, chirpy, cockney style, would shout back. So you've got lots of people who how are you doing, Tommy? And, and then the British would shout, waiter, waiter. <laughs> because they've been German waiters. And this sort of banter goes across no man's land. That, and, and that's going on on the night of the 20, 24th Christmas Eve. First the Germans would sing one of their carols and then we would sing one of ours. And I thought, well, this was really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. Dearest Dorothy, just a line from the trenches on Christmas Eve. A topping night with not much firing going on and both sides singing. It will be interesting to see what happens tomorrow. My orders to the Koi are not to start firing unless the Germans do. Best love from your loving brother, Arthur. And there developed a warmer atmosphere than you might well have expected. Exactly as British generals had warned might happen if you live in close conjunction with the enemy. The Germans are there. They're clearly human. They are not the pickle-hulled monster. You can see them. They're over there celebrating Christmas. That, that's, that's not a monstrous thing. That, that's recognisably human, isn't it? The goodwill on Christmas Eve is widespread. But there are sectors where there is no truce. One letter from an unnamed officer in the Rifles shows a hostility bred from his traumatic experience over the previous weeks and months. I found the Bosch's trench looking like the Thames on Henley Regatta night. They'd got little Christmas trees burning all along the parapet of their trench, no truce had been proclaimed, and I was all for not allowing the blighters to enjoy themselves, especially as they'd killed one of our men that afternoon. But my captain, who hadn't seen our wounded going mad and slowly dying outside the German trenches on the Aisne, wouldn't let me shoot. 
However, I soon had an excuse as when the Germans fired at us, so I quickly lined up my platoon and had all those Christmas trees down and out. And on Christmas Eve, a lot of Germans had put little candles in jam jars all the way along their parapets, and uh, uh, Colonel Scott Shepherd of the Worcesters refers to the, you know, his, his men shooting them out one after the other, which was a sort of true spirit, <laughs> Christmas spirit of 1914 in some places. Towards midnight, there seemed to be some commotion in the enemy trenches, and shortly afterwards, a lantern was raised above the enemy parapet. We were immediately ordered to open fire, and thus, what was undoubtedly a friendly gesture was brutally repulsed. And the French, on the whole, seem less keen. The Christmas truce is a collection of individual incidents that happen spontaneously all along the front line, mostly between the British and Germans, in some places between the Belgians and Germans, in some places between the French and Germans, although it's fair to say that because France and Belgium have been occupied by the Germans, they're not quite so keen on trucing as the, as the British are. The war diary of one German unit facing the French comments... On both days of the Christmas festival, the bloody game continued. Dawn, on Christmas Day 1914. It's another misty morning and the British soldiers are getting their Christmas presents. The British public and British industry responded fantastically to having their British expeditionary force in France and Belgium at the end of 1914. All sorts of companies provided um, gifts and, and, uh, and chocolate and, and, and woolen goods and comforts, but the most significant gift was the gift from Princess Mary, who set up a gift fund uh, towards the end of 1914 uh, to, to send a gift from herself and the women of the empire to all of those soldiers and sailors who were serving in, well, literally across the world at Christmas 1914. And it was a staggering undertaking because every single soldier uh, fighting on the Western Front received a gift and it fell into roughly two categories as far as the soldiers were concerned, which was about two thirds of them were for smokers and a third were for non-smokers. But for many, the true gift of Christmas Day is the peace. The silence seemed extraordinary after the usual din. From all sides, birds seemed to arrive, and we hardly ever see a bird generally, which shows how complete the silence and quiet was. It was Christmas Day. It's foggy at the start. And what becomes apparent is you can see the Christmas trees, the German Christmas is the light. And gradually, the Germans start shouting across and people start showing themselves. And it's Christmas Day, you don't shoot them. And people get more and more bold on both sides. They're shouting out to each other, Tommy! and that they're gradually engaging, and gradually the bolder spirits start to climb out of the trench and wave, that kind of thing. And you get both sides starting to respond to each other. And then once you're visible, no one's shooting. So you move into no man's land. It's quite an amazing process. It involves an incredible amount of trust. And that's interesting, because they don't trust each other. So it, it's a strange phenomenon. As the soldiers emerge from the trenches, they get a clear view of their enemy for the first time. 
the British began to wave to us and our men returned the gestures. Gradually, they left their trenches. Nobody thought of opening fire. That which only hours ago I should have thought was nonsense, I now saw with my own eyes. Truces were a very common thing in warfare and always have been. Both sides would often take the opportunity just to, to have a truce, to clear the battlefield, to, to bury the dead uh, and just take a breather. Um, but the Christmas truce was quite different. Both sides spontaneously in different places deciding just to stop fighting for a few days was quite unusual. Um, but I think that it's really important to say that it was of its time and it was of its time because of the people that took part as much as anything. In many places, the initial motivation for the Christmas Day truce is to bury the dead. At about 9am on Christmas Day, an English officer, accompanied by two of his men, came across and asked for a ceasefire until midnight to bury the dead. This was willingly granted. The officer came out, we gravely saluted each other, and I then pointed to nine dead Germans lying in midfield and suggested burying them which both sides proceeded to do. We gave them some wooden crosses for them, which completely won them over, and soon the men were on the best terms and laughing. And in at least one sector, the British and the Germans come together for one of the most memorable religious services of the First World War. With the dead buried, it's time to celebrate Christmas together. British and Bavarians, previously the worst of enemies, stood there shaking hands and exchanging items. Immediately one came up to me, shook my hand and gave me some cigarettes. Another gave me a handkerchief, a third signed his name on a field postcard and a fourth wrote his address in my notebook. Everyone mingled and conversed to the best of their ability. It was a moving moment. Between the trenches stood the most hated and bitter enemies and sang Christmas carols. All my life, I shall never forget the sight. Just you think that while you were eating your turkey and that, I was out talking and shaking hands with the very men I had been trying to kill a few hours before. It was astounding. You will hardly credit this, but it is the truth. Fancy shooting at the Germans and going over to wish them a Merry Christmas. I don't think it's happened in the world's history before. You would have thought that peace had been declared. This was my first sight of them at close quarters. Here they were, the actual practical soldiers of the German army. There was not an atom of hate on either side that day. We just said how bloody it was in that mud, how we hated it all. They said, we are Saxons, you are Anglo-Saxons. Why are we fighting? The Russians can't fight, the French won't fight, and you're the only people who do fight. Why are we doing this? We laughed and chaffed each other for about half an hour in no man's land. We shook hands, wished each other good luck. One fellow said, will you send this off to my girlfriend in Manchester? So I took his letter, franked it, and sent it off when I got back. A German lighting a Scotchman's cigarette and vice versa exchanging cigarettes and souvenirs. Where they couldn't talk the language, they were making themselves understood by signs, and everyone seemed to be getting on nicely. 
Here we were, laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. There's an exchange of gifts. Now, what do they give each other? Well, I'm not, I think we get the better out of this, the British, because what happens is the Germans will give you cigars, or, or perhaps a German lager. What do we give them? Well, tin of bully beef. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that's a, a good exchange. But there's a small exchanges of gifts. Lots of them refer to cigars being given. And there are many, many photographs. That's why we know, there's never been the slightest doubt that this was a widespread process. Photographs taken, and, and that they engage in banter. Some of them debate the war. That's not a good idea. <laughs> it doesn't generally go too well. The events of Christmas 1914 are, in my opinion, a clear indicator that the cultural similarities between the British and the Germans, and which include the shared Christmas tradition, were in many cases stronger than any kind of culturally driven hatred or state propaganda on both sides. You can rationally explain a ceasefire negotiation with the need to bury the fallen, but that doesn't explain why soldiers of the Bavarian 16th Reserve Infantry Regiment, for example, in which the young Adolf Hitler served, danced with British troops in no man's land. And it doesn't explain why in front of the lines held by the 6th Bavarian Reserve Division, many hundreds of German and British soldiers met up and mixed between the lines singing hymns and exchanging gifts and letters, or why group photographs of smiling German and British soldiers exist. By breakfast time, nearly all our men were on the ground between the trenches and were the greatest pals. We had a rare old jollification, which included football, in which the Germans took part. The most famous moment of the Christmas truce is the football match. But on this, controversy reigns. Football obviously crops up every time that the truce is mentioned. Um, and I think it's important to see it in, in, in context, in perspective really, um, because football actually plays a tiny, tiny part in the Christmas truce. All of those activities of sharing stuff, swapping buttons, swapping food, swapping photographs, all of that stuff's going on, singing together, drinking together, and only in a tiny, tiny handful of places is there any sign that the British and the Germans played football together. Now football is something that is inextricably linked with the Christmas truce. The evidence for it is difficult to find. Now, was there a big football match with, you know, 11 aside played over with rules, a referee and the rest of it? No, I can say that, no. Was there some sort of kickabout? Um, well, the evidence for this is mixed. Without doubt, there are some letters and diaries that mention football. Soon a couple of Englishmen brought a football out of their trench and the game started. This was also wonderful and unusual. That's also how it seemed to the English officers. That's indeed the effect of Christmas, the festival of love, that the hated enemy should for a short time become a friend. A huge crowd formed and we found a little rubber ball so of course football match came on and we exchanged various things. So the evidence points to there being some football played on Christmas Day 1914, but nothing approaching a full game. The thing that always strikes me is that when you do see 
a big group of men playing football in a pretty much an open piece of farmland, even if you've got a lot of other men scattered around, it would have been a spectacle. It would have been seen by an awful lot of people and there would have been a lot more people writing about it. And in most of the accounts, they talk about all sorts of other things that they very rarely talk about football, which really suggests that, that football wasn't such a big thing at all. This means that you have to look at balance of probabilities as a historian, as someone who wants to know what happened. Can we be certain? No. Balance of probability, was there some sort of kickabout? Yes, I think there was some sort of kickabout, but that's all it was, just a kickabout. As Christmas Day draws to a close, the men shake hands for the last time and head back to their own trenches. They know the significance of what's just occurred. Even as I write, I can scarcely credit what I have seen and done. This has indeed been a wonderful day. Today we have peace. Tomorrow you fight for your country, I fight for mine. Good luck. I left our friends on Christmas Day in a quiet mood. I stood upon the parapet and had a final look around, and not a shot was fired. One of the officers, a captain, clasped his hands together and looked towards heaven and said, my God, why cannot we have peace and let us all go home? The following few days see a gradual return to war. The ending of the truce is a bit like the start. It starts in many different ways across the line. And the ending, it finishes in many different ways at, at different times. So for some, it's just Christmas Day. And that's it. Next day, they're back to shooting. For some, it lasts almost a week. It's amazing. How does it end? Well, it ends in many different ways. You get a new battalion come into the line. Remember, the British are changing over all the time. New battalion arrives, we're not having any of this truce. Open fire, well, that ends the truce quick enough. Sometimes it's the guns, the Royal Artillery, or the German Artillery. <laughs> they're, not, they're not in the truce, and they open fire, and that ends the truce. There's a, a myriad of different ways it ends, but it ends everywhere, because it's not reality. The truce isn't reality. It's like, it's like a fairy tale. It's like a, an interregnum. It's, it's just a break in the real business of war. That's what they're there for, and that's what they get back to. It's ironic that an event that has had such an enormous cultural impact made absolutely no difference to the course of the First World War. When it came to it, the troops went back to war willingly. They'd enjoyed the truce, it had been a chance to do what they wanted to do. It's not a flowering of, of sort of the human spirit. It's, it's not a, a sort of goodwill to all men. It's not any great love of the Germans. It is all about them. They've got what they wanted out of it. They've got a break, they've improved the trenches, they've got rid of them buddies. And now it's time to go back to reality. It's time to go back to war. The Christmas truce didn't happen again for a number of reasons. Um, apart from one very, very minor truce uh, with, with, um, with one unit where a couple of officers were given a hard time over it, in most places, the British Army had made sure that artillery would continue all the way through Christmas Day, that offensive you know, machine gun fire would carry on, that sniping would carry on, uh, to make sure that there was no conditions 
for the truce to, to start. Um, and in fact, it's it probably true to say that uh, there was probably more firing on Christmas Day than there had been you know, in some of the days leading up to it. But I think the other thing to remember is that by Christmas 1915, there was no taste for it either. Those pre-war regular soldiers, those hard-bitten regulars who just wanted to take a day off out of the muck and mud in 1914 had nearly all gone. So, you know, not that they'd all been killed, but many of them had been, uh, they'd gone home, they'd been posted to other units, they were training soldiers or, or they'd been captured. Um, but by Christmas 1915, the vast majority of men by that time in France were territorials or they were new army men of Kitchener volunteers, people who joined the army specifically to kill the Germans. Not a professional army who would have happily just as happily killed the French or the Belgians or anyone else, but people who specifically had joined the army to kill the Germans. And by that time, a lot of them were already in a position where they'd had friends or relatives who'd been killed. So they got no interest in meeting with the Germans for a truce. To many historians, the message of hope is overshadowed by the fact that the real peace is as far away as ever. I think one of the reasons why it's become so popular in, in the public imagination is that people have sort of fallen in love with a kind of romanticised version of the truce. Uh, people have got this idea, and it's often promoted, that the truce was somehow about man's humanity to man, and it was somehow about uh, peace and goodwill to all men. Whereas the absolute reality is that by the end of 1914, they are still mostly hard-bitten, regular soldiers. Um, that really, the men that Wellington referred to as the scum of the earth when he was praising his own army. These were hard-drinking, hard-fighting, hard-swearing professional soldiers. And they just seen the opportunity just to take a couple of days off. You know, to them, war was business. Uh, there was nothing personal in it. They, they got no dislike, real dislike of the German army. And because of that, it meant that you could just take a couple of days off. And then two or three days later, you'd have no compunction shooting the same fellas that you'd been chatting to and swapping drinks with through the head because it was purely business, it was, it was nothing personal. And I think that that's something that's often missed. You know, this, this was not man's humanity to man. This was a bunch of cynical, hard-bitten, very hard soldiers just taking the opportunity just to, just to have a couple of days off and a couple of days rest from all that misery and mud. When it comes to it, those people that they met in no man's land, that they were photographed with, that they shook hands with, they, they played football with, that those people, within a matter of days, they were willing to shoot at, to put a bullet through their brain, to burn it if it came to it. And that is the real human nature. That's, if you like, the blackness of the human spirit. You could see a man, you could shake hands with him, smoke his cigar, and you're perfectly willing to kill them. And yet, many who were there did report feeling something special, a brief interlude of peace that we remember to this day. The whole thing is extraordinary. The men were all so natural and friendly. The Germans have no bitter feelings towards us. It was a Christmas celebration in keeping with the command, peace on earth, and a memory which will stay with us always. And now, almost exactly 108 years later, nearly 1,000 faith leaders 
signed onto a Christmas truce statement demanding a temporary ceasefire in the war in Ukraine. You heard part of a 50-minute documentary entitled Silent Night, the story of the Christmas truce in World War I. The film is posted on the Timeline History Channel for world history documentaries. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Downloads are free. Our email address is tuc at tucradio.org. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.